Last week, last week, of course, we uh, talked about uh, Christ coming in flesh. We talked about the doctrine of eternal generation, which was uh, was you know a bit complex. And I do have actually a correction I need to offer on that, if I could. John, uh, Mr. Blunt, you had asked last week about Hebrews 11 and the objection on that. On that, like, how would you interpret that if it's not unique, right? So I went back to an article that the Gospel Coalition had from a guy named Charles Lee Irons. He was a guy who's done a lot of work on this. And he was talking about his his answer to that Hebrews 11 objection was the fact that it doesn't account, and this is right from the Gospel Coalition article. If you want the link, I can give it to you. Uh, basically, that the objection, to use his words, fails to reckon with the inherent flexibility of language. It may not be literally true that Isaac is Abraham's only son, but he could still be called only begotten to highlight the fact that he's Abraham's sole heir. So the point is, is that while he's not Abraham's only son, he is his only heir. He's the one who inherits the promise and all of Abraham's stuff. Is begotten, when you say begotten, does it has that connotation included in it of heirship? Well, again, I would say that it's flexible, right? The language is flexible, so maybe... Uh, well, you know, it's interesting... Because Christ has that right in Psalm 2 where it's ask of me and I'll give the nations as your inheritance, right? The peoples for your possession. and and uh, So yeah, it might have some of that flexibility in there too. But the point is, is like Hebrews 11 doesn't debunk it, right? Okay, so thought I'd offer that up. Uh, it's good to offer up corrections uh, sometimes when you need to. So we'll go ahead and go into that. And we talked about that. We talked about uh, you know, getting grace upon grace from Christ. Let's go to John 1.17. Thank you, brother. That's great. I'm going to have to buy you something. Don't hold me to that. Um, let's, go to, uh, let's flip to verse 17. Would somebody read John 1.17 for us? For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, Moses is a big deal to the people of Israel. Right? He is a big deal. Pastor Scott's even talked about it from the pulpit. That, that uh, uh, as a matter of fact, I believe it was even last week, right? Where he talked about how the people, how the Jewish leaders, when they dragged the blind man right in and have that little, have that uh, so-called trial, right, investigation, he says, you know, we are followers or we are disciples of Moses, right? And Jesus even uses Moses later on in John to talk about, you know, uh, that Moses wrote of him. Right? Moses wrote about me, right? And even in John, we've I know we've talked about this earlier, or Pastor Scott's preached on this earlier. He talks about Moses and how he says, you know, basically you claim to be, you know, to follow the law of Moses. Why don't you do it? Right? Why don't you do what he says? So Moses is a very big deal to Israelites. You know, it's funny how they talk about how we're disciples of Moses and all that, and yet people didn't even follow Moses even back then. Right? There are hundreds upon thousands of unmarked graves in the desert that testify to it. But Moses, however, right, he writes with a purpose. 
and with a point. And I think, and I've read, and I'm I'm convinced that Moses writes the Pentateuch to point out the fact that they need something beyond the law. Right? He records, of course, how things got started, creation. He writes about how God was faithful to the patriarchs and to the promises. And he writes about how he de- God delivers His people. Right? And he writes about the law. But it's don't confuse sometimes what the content of what is written for why it's written. Right? That could be there there could be a different thing as to why it's written. And John Salehamer makes this point, and others make this point, uh, that the law is written to point out the fact that they can't keep it. That they can't follow it completely. Now, are they under the obligation? Should they? Yes. Right? As Paul says, the law is what? Is school, yeah, we'll get to that in a second, but I'm, the law is good, right? Is the law evil? No, never. The law is good. The problem is us. That we can't follow it. But Moses writes the law, and again convinced, that points to the fact that you can't keep it. And that you need something, you need someone to intercede for you, to obey this for you, to meet the requirement of this law. And of course, their Messiah, our Messiah, does it for us. So, the law is given through Moses, right? God God used Moses on Mount Sinai to give him the law. And if you notice, again, this is something else an Old Testament scholar points out, John Salehamer points out, that you notice that the law early on in Exodus, right? It's a decent-sized portion, right? But it's not very long, is it? If you look at it, it's not very long. It takes up some chapters. And then Moses comes down from the mountain, and what does he see? Breaking the law. They're breaking the law, right? They've already erected a golden calf with the greatest excuse in history from Aaron. I don't know what happened. I threw this gold in here. Oh, out popped this calf. That wasn't my fault. You know. And then what happens, right? Moses intercedes, right? And then God gives more law. And then they break the covenant again. And then what does God do? God gives more law. It's almost as if when the trespasses increase, so does the law. So the law, as good as it is, and as reflective as the holy character of God it is, can it save? No. No, it cannot save. The law is given through Moses, right? That's whom Israel set their hope on. And he was used mightily by God. He was an instrument in the delivery of God's people. But there's a greater instrument of delivery of God's people, isn't there? What does, what does, who brings grace and truth according to this passage? Jesus Christ. Amen.
right? He's their pro- uh, Jesus is their. Uh, I'm sorry, Moses is their prophet and king of Israel during their years in the wilderness, right? He intercedes on their behalf, right? And Jesus comes and he's the true prophet, and he's the king, and he's also something Moses wasn't. He's the priest. And our brother Michael Flieger uh, pointed this out. What is the function of the law? Let's turn there. Let's go to Galatians 3, 23-24. Galatians 3, 23-24. Someone read Galatians 3, 23-24 for us. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The The law then was our guardian until Christ that we could be justified by faith. Yeah, guardian. Or another word for that is schoolmaster. Right? The law instructed us. The law told us who God who God is and His character and what He demands. Right? And it's our guardian. It's set in place until Christ came that what we might be justified by faith. 2 Corinthians 3. Let's turn there. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 11. Someone read 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 11 for us. This is Paul talking about him uh, being a minister of the new covenant. All right. The ministry of death. Carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, that in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is per, per, permanent, permanent have glory. Amen. How is the ministry of the law described here? Verse seven. The ministry of death. Why? Because it brings condemnation. Right. Because it brings condemnation. Amen. Who can meet its righteous demands perfectly? Nobody. Nobody. Ah, somebody said Jesus. (laughs) Usually that's the right answer in this class. Um, And it's right here. Jesus. But for everybody else, right? And you and you know it's talking about the law, right? Because it's carved in letters on, which is alluding to what? The Ten Commandments, right? God writing the law upon the tablets. But notice that He says that this ministry of death is it without glory? No. No, it isn't. It has glory, right? So much so, what does Paul allude to here? What story does he tell about the glory of the law? Moses' face. Moses face. What happens? 
Men, do you remember the story? Moses comes down, right, from the mountain, and his face is what? Glowing. Glowing. Radiant. And the people of Israel, what do they say? Hide that thing, Moses. We can't take that. We can't look at that. So even though it brings death, it's at no fault of the law. It is glorious. It is worthy of honor. Worthy of glory. And him being with God, Moses shines. However, is it permanent? No. No. It brought to an end. But there is another ministry here. The ministry of what? The Spirit. It's the ministry that the Holy Spirit brings because of who has come. Right. The ministry of the Spirit is the continual ministry of Jesus Christ. And what about that glory? How long does it last? It's permanent. It's a ministry of the Spirit. And the ministry of the Spirit in this age is the ministry of the New Covenant. Isaiah talks about giving the servant as a covenant to the people. And what mechanism does God use? And what does the New Covenant promise? Name some things. What's the promise? I will write my law in your heart. Write my law in your heart. Amen. Thank you, Mike. What else? That we will be His people and He'll be our God. Yep. What else? Yeah. Look to that. What else? Uh, you know, we won't have to teach one another to know God, but we'll all, everyone else, people will know Him. Okay. All right. What's, all right. What's a big one, though? What's the big one that's out there? Forgiveness. No more sacrifice. No more permanent forgiveness of your sins. Assurance. How does God write the law on our heart? What mechanism does He use for that? How can we be permanently forgiven of our sins? The Spirit who joins us to who? Jesus Christ. There you go. Jesus Christ. Matthew five seventeen through eighteen. Someone read Matthew five seventeen through eighteen. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a iota, not a dot will pass from law. Until all is accomplished. Jesus came to fulfill it. And boy, did He. Amen. He obeyed it completely and took our sentence for disobeying the law, right? The condemnation that the law brings, Colossians says, He did what with it? Yeah. What was nailed to it? My sin. Your sin? Let's just. What does what does Colossians say here? What does it actually say? Now, Bake is downstairs going through Colossians, but you know, yeah, the law and the ordinances, right? Right. Verse fourteen says, "By canceling the record of debt." that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
the condemnation that the law brings us, Jesus took on himself. And when he was nailed to that cross, so was it. Amen and amen. So the law comes, but grace and truth comes through who? Christ Jesus. This is an interesting thing I caught. That word came, and New American Standard says was realized, right? The word is agenita, which comes from the Greek word genomai, which means to come into existence which is the exact same word in verse 3. In John 1, verse 3. And what does John 1, 3 say? Someone read it. It's right up the page. All things came into being through Him apart, and nothing came into being yet to come. So when Jesus puts on flesh grace and truth in a very real, physical, tangible sense comes into existence when Christ puts on flesh. Grace is not a substance, right, that floats in the universe, right, that you can put in a test tube, right, or measure, or scientifically catalog. Grace is something that God does. Truth is what corresponds to reality. Right, brother? It's a fact. Jesus embodies God's grace. And who else could but Him? Right? There's these record of laws and demands that stand upon us that we cannot meet. We need... Somehow, either we need somebody to meet it for us, or we're all done for. God Himself, the Son, puts on flesh to do it. And to obey perfectly, so that not only can He take the punishment for our sin, but in His incarnation, He can do what else? Obey the Father in all things. And have a perfect righteousness that He can give us in place of our filthy rags. Amen. And He embodies truth itself. Right? All truth comes from who? God. Jesus is truth embodied. What did he say to Pilate at his trial? Well, that's what Pilate said to him. Which he said, Everyone on the I have come to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate, in the greatest ironic statement in the history of statements, looks truth right in the face and says, What is true? Grace and truth, not that they didn't exist before, because they certainly did, but in Christ's coming embodies it. He brings it. You might even say, maybe even into like a very real sense, sort of a a physical existence, at least in His incarnation. Any thoughts or comments on that?
John 1.18. Okay, John 1.18. Someone read that for us. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Thank you, brother. Thank you. And there we go with that begotten again. There it is again. And I think rightly, and, and again, NASB has begotten, and the others don't go with it. But again, I think begotten is right. So, the first statement, let's break that apart. No one has seen, as, as Herman said in the KJV, no one has seen God at any time, or other versions. No one has ever seen God. Now, what's this saying? Had, had people before this ever encountered God at all? What's the answer? Yes. yes, absolutely, of course, right? We could just name them off. So what is this saying then? No one is what? Seeing God's face. Seeing God's face, right? No one has seen God's face. This is a continual, continual theme of Scripture. Again and again and again. And I actually I've talked about this before in a men's breakfast, but we're going to go to it here in a second. Let's flip around here. Uh, would somebody read so we can split it up. Would somebody read uh, Exodus 33.20? If somebody could raise their hand to volunteer it. Okay, thank you, Mike. Alright, I'm going to hand out some other verses. Uh, John 5.37. Somebody raise their hand to take that. Thank you, Tony. Got you there. John 6.46. Brian, thank you. Uh, Colossians 1.15. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. First uh, Timothy 1.17. Sean, thank you. First uh, Timothy 6.16. Jonathan, thank you. First uh, John 4.12. Jeremy, thank you. And First John 4.20. One more. Oh, thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. All right. All right. So listen to this theme of not seeing God's face. All right. Exodus 33.20. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me in the Thank you. Let's stop here just for a second. Exodus 33.20. If you weren't to turn there, uh, what would you think the context of this be? If it's Exodus 33, who's God talking to? Moses. Moses, right? And what episode is this? What episode in the life of the Israel, Israel is this? In the wilderness, right? This is after Israel sinned with the golden calf, right? And Moses asked to see God's glory. And God tells him, he warns him, he says, you can't, you can't see my face and, and live. John uh, 5.37 Thank you. John 6.46 Not that anyone has seen the Father except He is from God. He has seen the Father. Colossians 1.15 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Yeah, the image of, and how does God describe there? He is what? Invisible. invisible. Right? God is invisible. Can't see Him. 1 Timothy 1.17 Thank you. So God, again, shown as invisible, can't be seen. 1 Timothy 6.16 Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, 
whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Don't you just love how Scripture just gives these really just vivid pictures, right? Who dwells in unapproachable light. Immense, immaculate beauty and light and purity that you can't even approach. I didn't pull this passage, but Isaiah, when the angels are around the throne of God, right? How many wings do they have? Six. Six. Okay. All right. They've got six wings, right? That's right. I, I didn't remember that. That was that was. A, I was correcting myself in my own illustration. How about that? To cover their legs and two they flew. Yeah, two they flew. Two to cover their legs with their feet, and two to cover what? Their eyes. Their eyes. Why cover their eyes? Because God's glory is so bright. Yeah, God's glory is so bright they can't look at it, <laughs> and they live in His presence. First John four twelve. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God provides us, and His love has been perfected in us. Amen. Amen. And 1 John 4.20 If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. The person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has not seen, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Alright, so you see the theme, right? God is invisible. God can't be seen, right? Unapproachable light. You have this idea of, the Scripture is clear, you can't see Him. But, there is a doctrine that's taught in Scripture, which is a magnificent one. Beatific vision. Anybody ever heard of this term, beatific? Beatific vision. What is the beatific vision? Anybody know what that is? Would care to define that for us? It, it's uh, the, the blessed means the blessed vision, being able to see God. Yeah. This is the event when God's redeemed will directly and immediately. Behold God in all His glory and see His face. Quoting Charles Hodge from his Systematic Theology, this vision is beatific. It beatifies. It beatifies. It transforms the soul into the divine image transfusing it into the divine life so that it is filled with the fullness of God. When we see God face to face, He'll fill us with His glory. Not that we can, of course, contain it all. But it'll be so overwhelming, so it'll be beautiful, and it will transform us completely, gloriously. And this is the longing of the people of God in the Old Testament. Let's all turn to Job. Job 19. Verses 25 through 27. Alright, somebody read Job 19, verses 25 through 27. 
For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, and my heart faints within me. Job in his in his terrible time of suffering has this hope beyond his life mm-hmm. that he will look on God who he whom he hopes to vindicate will vindicate him but that he'll see him and that in his flesh that he will see God and my eyes will behold him right he's not talking spiritually right he's talking about his physical eyeballs We'll see him. And of course, we've got Exodus 33, right? Exodus 33, verse 17. The Lord said um, to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Please show me your glory. Moses says, I want to see it. It's his desire. Another one, David. David's desire is to see God's uh, glory. Uh, someone, I'll just have just read off like we did before. Have assigned verses to each one. We'd like to pick up Psalm eleven, verse seven. Psalm eleven, verse seven. Thank you, Luke. Thank you. Appreciate it. And then we need Psalm seventeen, fifteen. Thank you, Jonathan and Mike. Uh, I'll give you um, Psalm one forty, verse thirteen. Listen to the longing of David who speaks, I think, for God's people, that he wants to see God's face. Psalm 11, verse 7. Do we have that? For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold His face. Psalm 17, verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your life. Psalm 140, verse 13. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. Okay. <clears throat> so you have this desire of the old, uh, the the Old Testament people of God wanting to see the face of God, and God's and that desire is is just pumping through their veins. And Jesus gives a very precious promise in Matthew 5, 8. You maybe even memorize this in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? They shall see God. Verse 18 in John 1 says, No one's ever seen God, but the only begotten God, who's at the Father's side, He's made Him known. God put on flesh and said, Do you want to see what I'm like? Look at my son. Yeah, brother. So, um, since the longing for the Old Testament folks, should be a longing for us, or is it a longing kind of that because of the environment of Christ? I will. I, that's a good question. Let's turn to 1 John 3 2. First John three two. Someone read that. 
Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. The next verse, brother. And everyone uh, who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Amen. What you guys think? Thinks that think that's a desire that we should still have Amen. as the new covenant people of God? Absolutely. John seventeen twenty four. I'll read it. Father, this is in the this is in the garden, the high priestly prayer, as it's called. Jesus says to the Father, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. It is legitimate and it is right for us to want to see the face of God. And to see the glory of God. And God's glory demands to be seen. It must be seen. You think... Think about this. Everywhere in this universe, God's glory is on display. I think we can make that argument from Scripture, right? Heavens declare the glory of God, right? Even in its fallen state, right, that the curse has spread throughout the universe, even then God's glory is on display. There's only one place in this universe outside of you know demonic forces who rebel against Him that, that God's name is actively blasphemed and disobeyed. It's here on this planet. Now, I've just outed myself of what I think of extraterrestrials, but that's okay. You think God's satisfied with that? You think how beautiful and glorious He is that He's going to allow His glory not to shine on this planet? Every knee will bow. Everywhere the glory of the Lord will be seen. Amen? We should long for that. We should hope for that. And there was a preview of God's glory that happened. It's in three of the Gospels where for a moment the veil was pulled back and God's glory was seen. Anybody know what we're talking about here? The Mount of Transfiguration. Oh, I wish we had time for this. But we'll get there, Lord willing. Turn to Matthew uh, 17. Just really quickly. Matthew 17. Now, this uh, passage of Mount Transfiguration is in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. Parallel passages are in Mark 9, 2 through 8, and Luke 9, 28 through 36. And of course it talks about Jesus, right? Showing in all His glory, right? And what's Peter want to do? He wants to build booths. Right? And to stay, right? You know, sometimes Peter gets a really bad rap. You know, I, I know. You know, I, I know what he did. He's got foot and mouth disease. I, I get it. But wouldn't you want to build a tent too and stay there? Wouldn't you want to look at that for the rest of your life? Amen. He's not wrong. His timing's off. Like the disciples, usually their timing's off. 
And notice, every passage before the Mount of Transfiguration, every one, you get this verse or something similar to it. If you go to just jump up one verse, end of chapter 16. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And the very next passage every time is this Mount of Transfiguration. You think that's significant? I do. It's God's trailer, so to speak, of the coming kingdom of God. Which gives you a hint of what it's going to be like. Jesus in His unmediated, immaculate, unsuppressible, magnificent glory. And even unveiled in His flesh, as we study these Gospels and we study the life of Christ, we will, not in its unmediated glory, but we will see God. We will see God on display. Do we want to know who God is like? We look at Jesus. Do we want to know what God would do in a situation? We look at Jesus. Do we want to see God in all His glory? We look at Jesus. Any questions on any of that? Comments? Yeah, brother. Um, this uh, Mount of Transfiguration uh, has an interesting uh, um, connection to our verse. Uh, and that is, if you look at when was the last time God spoke from heaven, well, it was Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, there was darkness, there was uh, lightning and thunder, the sound of a trumpet. He was so fearful that even Moses quaked, and God gave the law and which brought condemnation. But here, it's a bright cloud. There's no thunder or lightning, uh, but God is speaking grace to them. Yep, amen. He's speaking grace and truth, right? And by the way, who's there at the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. This is one of those passages you've got to sit and kind of marinate on for a while. So here we got the only begotten God, right? Who's in the who is in the and I like the way the NSB says this because it's it's more it's close to the literal. It's the bosom of the Father. And there's a quote from the lexicon we won't get into. But anyway, uh, Jesus, right, who's in the bosom, he's he's connected to the Father, right? He comes, he's eternally begotten by the Father. He Reveals him. He explains him. That that word, that last word, uh, that last word there of explained or has made him known, uh, revealed him. John MacArthur says about this. This is this is really great. He talks about we get the word exegesis from this word. So we get our word from him, and he says Jesus is the only one qualified to exegete or interpret God to man. Then he quotes a, a verse in, in Matthew. And how true that is, right? Jesus does exegete the Father. And who better qualified than the one that comes from His very bosom, so to speak. The one who comes in intimate, who is in intimate relationship with Him. Who knows Him. Who comes from Him. So that's it for John 1, 1 through 1-18. Any thoughts on that? Just really quickly, uh, 
Brad, if you wouldn't mind, we'll just flip through these next slides really quickly. Yeah, let's skip that. Okay, so here are our sections that we'll use for study for the life of Christ. These, these, um, these headings and these uh, these titles and these passages. These are from, and I, I've had, I passed this commentary or this harmony around before. They just come right from this one, Harmony of the Gospels by Robert Thomas and Stan Gundry. These uh, good headings. Now, uh, these might. We might deviate a little bit from this. We'll have set aside some time to talk about something like I want to set aside at least one class to talk about Christ putting on flesh and Him being fully human and truly human and how that interacts with His divinity. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks. But just to go through this really quickly. So we have our part one, a preview of who Jesus is. Okay. And we got... Yeah. Is it... No? Okay. A preview of who Jesus is, and that's the beginning parts of Luke and John and, and Matthew. Next week we'll go into the genealogies, and there's some really cool stuff there. Then part two, we've got the early years of John the Baptist. That is taken up in the Gospel of Luke. Then part three, we've got the early years of Jesus Christ, which of course are the birth narratives. Right, We have the birth narratives. Part 4, we have the public ministry of John the Baptist, which is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Notice how so far we're not even in, in parts like 2 and 3, we're not even touching the Gospel of John right, right then. Uh, part 5, we've got the end of John's ministry and the beginning of Christ, largely in Judea. Next, we've got the ministry of Christ in Galilee, which is a huge portion of Scripture. Notice uh, Matthew how many chapters that takes up, and a good portion of, of Mark and Luke, of course, and a little tiny bit of John. Uh, part 7, we got the ministry of Christ around Galilee. This is a, a good portion of Scripture as well. Part 8, we have the later Judean ministry of Christ. Part 9, the ministry of Christ in and around Perea. Uh, part 10, we have the formal presentation of Christ to Israel and the resulting conflict. This is the week before Christ's death essentially is, is what this is. Uh, part 11 is prophecies in preparation for the death of Christ. This is, um, this is the, uh, the prophecy in Matthew 24 after he leaves the temple on Tuesday. And it also includes uh, the Passover uh, celebration as well, the Last Supper. Uh, part 12, we have the death of Christ. And then part 13, we have the resurrection and ascension. So we'll basically be following that timeline with a little bit of flexibility in between all that. Any other questions, comments you guys have before we close?